This is Jared Blumenfeld. Welcome to Podship Earth. This week, we discover how farming can literally save the planet. It's all about the soil under our feet and how it can help absorb excess carbon in the atmosphere. We hear about how carbon farming practices also allow more water to percolate into the soil, resulting in big increases in the quality and amount of food we can grow. Later in the show, we visit Dino Giacomazzi and his 104-year-old grandma Lilia on their 125-year-old farm in California's Central Valley. What's the key to living 100 years? Well, one thing is... uh... I, olive oil. Olive, olive. olive oil. I love olive oil. <laughs> what do you do with it? Well, I cook with it all the time. We begin with John Wick and his wife, Peggy Rathman, who in 1998 purchased 540 acres of grazing land in West Marin, California. They spent the next 20 years becoming farmers, carbon farmers, and in the process they invested $12 million and founded the Marin Carbon Project to help the rest of the planet understand the soil science needed to bring the climate back into healthy alignment. When John moved onto the land, he and his wife Peggy wanted to help heal the grazing pastures, so they evicted the cows and hoped for the best. I sat down with John and his carbon advisor, Kala Ostrander, to get the lowdown. We had some assumptions that proved to be wrong. One, that nature would do better without us. And we had this uh, uninformed idea that nature would heal itself if we got out of its way. And we had this vision of wilderness. When you came into this, did you did you know what you were getting into? No, not at all. I think what's so interesting is what you learned so changed your perspective and approach and maybe relationship with that landscape. Yeah, it's true. My approach to managing this landscape made everything worse. You know, we I am not afraid of hard work. I have a, a, a tendency to use equipment and technology. And so as the weeds increased and the brush increased, we tried everything to hold it at bay and Mm. and recover what we'd lost and nothing I was doing worked. And it wasn't until we considered reintroducing living systems into it, like grazing, that we started to get a handle on it. And, And that's when you started noticing the changes in the health of the soil. That's right. And right. so on Earth, there are several terrestrial systems. There are forest right. systems. Okay. We actually have now an urban system. There are um, desert systems and tundras. But it turns out that the single largest cover type on Earth is grazed rangelands. Hmm. 3.5 billion hectares of land mass. Rangeland, by definition, occurs where there's not adequate water to support a forest. So it's a drier system made up mostly of grass and grass plants. There's up to 40% brush and tree cover, but it's mostly grass. And on earth, grass co-evolved with grazing animals. Grass needs to be grazed, and we didn't know that. Okay, so at this point, you saw that by returning grazing to your land, the property started to get healthier. The weeds and invasive species began to disappear. And then you and Peggy took this investigation to the next level 
by going to UC Berkeley and asking them to explain the science behind this recovery, right? I just think it's very important to understand that this was not random. It wasn't just science for the sake of science. We actually had an observation and we had a scientific theoretical framework. So in 2007, we were able to ask our original question, is my grazing management increasing durable soil carbon? So just to be clear, when you say durable soil carbon. Durable means that the carbon will stay in the soil for a very long time. So previous thinking was that you did have an increase in soil carbon from a grazing management, but this question was how quickly could it become more durable? How much carbon could we get to stay in the soil, not to just come right back out again? So John, you've become an expert in soil health. Maybe you could explain how this entire system works. So carbon, which is was carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is now carbohydrates in plants. And there are four pathways where these carbohydrates can now enter soil systems. First, physically, they're there in the root tissues, which are carbohydrates. All of the carbon and carbohydrates came from the air and nowhere else. I never knew that. I never thought about it. I assumed they probably came in through the roots. It's not that way. And that was actually our question. Does carbon actually flow the other way? And can we build up soil carbon through management? So atmospheric carbon becomes carbohydrates, becomes plant tissues and roots. And the fourth pathway is this natural accumulation of plant tissues, manures that come on the surface of the soil, and soil systems globally have developed different strategies for this carbon now to be pulled down as the plants and systems need it. So we have four pathways where carbon can enter the soil system. Essentially, what they discovered was that you could get carbon into the soil and it could get into these more durable fractions much more quickly than we thought. We used to think it took hundreds of years to build topsoil and to build soil carbon. And what they discovered was that it actually can take very, very little amount of time. By applying just half an inch of compost to different control groups of rangeland, the Marine Carbon Project found that the soil radically increased its ability to absorb carbon in a very short amount of time. In America, we throw away 50% of all produce, amounting to some 60 million tons of material that could be turned into organic compost and then applied to the soil. Worldwide, we throw away 1.3 billion tons of food. Don't get me wrong, the first goal should be to reduce all that food waste, but anything that is wasted shouldn't go to waste. In a growing number of cities, there are now curbside collection programs for food scraps. In San Francisco, for instance, more than 600 tons of wasted food are turned into organic compost each day. So John, given these enormous numbers, what do you think the global impact of applying compost to rangelands could be? We actually believe we can stabilize the Earth's climate, lower the temperatures, and increase the resources from which to produce even more solutions for human material cultural needs. It doesn't really get much more profound than that. Now that you have science and the proof of concept, how have you been working to get carbon farming adopted into the rest of California and beyond? The Marin Carbon Project built out an example of what could work within an existing system. So there's already a mass network of conservation districts out on the ground whose sole purpose is to help stop erosion. So they were smart and they said, what if we built this concept of carbon farming into those people's work so you could just go out and just be there? And that's um, what we helped advance. So it's really critically important to appreciate that all farming is actually carbon farming. And farming is the art 
of transforming atmospheric carbon dioxide into carbohydrates. What we've discovered is there's a version of it that moves it into the soil. Which makes our farmers our new environmental heroes. After a word from our sponsor, Bol and Branch, we visit with Dino Giacomazzi, a farmer in the Central Valley who's worked out a way of applying carbon farming techniques to row crops like wheat. So David, we just came back from that trip in the Central Valley. We had to sleep in the same room. Those were not very high quality sheets that we were sleeping on in the motel. No. And you, you weren't sleeping that great. No, I did not sleep well. And, you know, you started snoring and I I, I started snapping every time you snored and um, it, it worked. You stopped. But, it, but I, <laughs> the truth is, I woke up one time and I heard you snapping and I was like, and then I was like, I think Jared's snapping in his sleep, which was really weird. So then I just started snapping because... And I was like, why? Oh my God, David's snapping. But you is did. he asleep? But you didn't say anything. I didn't want to own up to it because then I'd, th- I'd have to say why I was snapping, which is your snoring would make you conscious. You'd snore more than I'd sleep less. Sleeping. So sleep's so important to me. Me too. I mean, I love it. I absolutely love sleep. Now you're back at my house. The sheets are good. It was amazing. I slept great last night. There's something about when you have new crisp sheets they're just so formaldehyde free though formaldehyde free like once we found that out that freaked me out like i i to think that these deadly chemicals that you put in dead people that sheep manufacturers would use those and it's so hard to find them without them ball and branch is one of the few companies that does it yeah it's important because you don't want to be like sucking in fumes from formaldehyde while you're putting your head on a pillow so the only way you know that they're chemical-free is organic. Normally, we think about organic food, right? An organic apple, organic lettuce. But this is organic sheets, and it's important because all the crap that the competitors put in. The nice thing about Ball and Branch is you know the people that grew the cotton, that weave the sheets. They're getting a living, more than a living wage, and they're, they're able to have lives of dignity. And you know that by the Fair Trade logo, which you see on coffee, you see on chocolate, but you don't often see on clothing or things like bedding. So it's really cool. Congrats to Ball and Branch for, for going the extra step. Yeah, before the podcast, I probably didn't pay attention to stuff like that. But now that we're doing the podcast and Jared's taking me through Environment 101, uh, I do feel much better when I'm buying stuff that's fair trade. So, okay. So right now, listeners can get $50 off their first set of sheets at bollandbranch.com, promo code PODSHIP. Go to bollandbranch.com. That's spelled B-O-L-L and branch.com. Or branch, if you want to say it correctly. <laughs> and use the promo code PODCHIP. 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 It's PODCHIP. PODCHIP. Bollandbranch.com. Promo code PODCHIP. Thanks. PODCHIP. 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 Cousin David and I traveled to the small town of Hanford in California's San Joaquin Valley to meet up with a fourth-generation farmer, Dino Giacomazzi, and his amazing 104-year-old grandmother, Lilia. I was born about 20 miles from here. And I've been living here since 1936. So I'm 104 now. You look incredible. You really do. I've never met somebody 104. I don't think I've ever met anyone over 100. You haven't? No. So tell us about the farm when you grew up here. What was it like? At that time you grew up, you didn't, you didn't have much money. 
Mm. But we were lucky. We had the cows, and then they had the milk and the chickens, and uh, so we were uh, we were okay because we had a lot of our own food and didn't have to buy a lot of stuff. But you didn't buy anything unless you needed it. I lived a, a happy life on the farm, and I had to milk cows, and. Uh, but that was my job to do, and never bothered me because we always had a lot of parties, accordion music, and dancing, and I used to love to dance. <laughs> dance about four hours straight, and uh, then another thing, I, eat, I still eat my three meals a day, and then one thing I think is very important, if you're healthy, to be very active. This ranch is 125 years old, run by the same family. Mm. So Dino now, are you in the fourth generation? I'm fourth, yep. He's the fourth generation, so. And that must make you very proud. Oh, absolutely, because without Dino, we wouldn't be having, I don't think I'd be living here, so I'm very fortunate that he decided to carry on. He stayed with us, so we thank God for that. What does it mean to you to be a fourth-generation farmer? Is that Does it feel like a big obligation on your shoulders to keep keep it all going? It is a big responsibility, but it's a, it's a responsibility that I proudly take on because, you know, I, I really value what it is that we do. I mean, producing food. Uh, and taking care of you know the natural resources of the planet is a noble uh, venture. I think it's something of value to do, and I'm and I'm proud that I have been able to make a difference for my family and still be here. When you were growing up, or when you were going to college, did you ever consider that you wouldn't continue the family business and try something else? I left the farm um, just after college and spent ten years. 13 years, actually, off the farm. I was in San Francisco during the first dot-com bubble, kind of waiting for the next one. I got called back to the farm when my father had contracted uh, lymphoma, and they asked me if I would come back and watch things for him. I kind of fell in love with uh, agriculture and, and, uh, and had a very different attitude about agriculture, having uh, left the farm, moved to the city, and come back. And I'm still here now 16 years later. And when I moved back to the farm, the only way I knew how to work was to just be looking into the future, try to spot a trend, and then start today to work towards meeting that trend when it comes, right? Uh, otherwise, you're sort of left behind. We are talking about this with your grandma. When she was born, a large percentage of the population were in agriculture now you said less than one percent so people don't know farmers right so but you've really um distinguished your career by by kind of bringing that knowledge to to think about conservation practices how did that begin so the um it's funny my father who uh is a very cons was who passed away in 2011 a very conservative, you know, uh, very dedicated kind of Rush Limbaugh sort of character. 
uh, who who often complained about you know welfare people on welfare and whatnot. <clears throat> he also you know despite that he loved to go down to the uh, the Natural Resources Conservation Service office you know once a year to see what kind of free stuff we could get from the government right and um, and he went down right about the time I came back and signed up for uh, a grant that would pay us $30 an acre, which is, I mean, almost nothing. It's like pennies, uh, to implement a program that would produce less dust in the farming process. What we discovered was there were some practices that, are be, were, that were being used in the, in the Midwest, essentially designed to minimize soil erosion. So we took some of those technologies and, and modified it and adapted it to our conditions and, um, and came up with a system that reduced dust by 85%. What was magical about it, actually, is that uh, not only did it reduce dust by 80, it's actually 83%, uh, it actually improved our yields and increased, it increased our yields and improved the quality of the feed that we were growing to feed our cows. Maybe help us understand what the difference between healthy active soil and less healthy soil is and why that's important to a farmer. There are more living things in an inch of soil than there are on top of the earth, right, entirely, right? In, in, the, in the first inch, there's more things living than in all everything on top, right? So it is a, it is a very thriving uh, biological area. And everything that happens in soil happens through biologies. So, you know, how, how nutrients get into a plant, right? How fertilizer goes from, you know, the back of a truck that's spreading it onto a field, and in our case, a lot of it is cow manures or fertilizer, uh, how it gets into the plant is that, you know, one set of bugs breaks it down into something different, like transforms it from one f- thing to another. And then another set of bugs take it and bring it into the plant, right? There's you know, it's it's called mycorrhiza. It's the, the 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 bugs that live in the rhizosphere or around the roots, right? The ecosystem around the roots themselves have special bugs that bring the nutrients in and out. So you used to drive your tractor over the fields, which I think you call passes, a lot. How did that tilling impact the soil? What I discovered is that you know heavy tillage. Uh, which exposes, you know, anaerobic or, you know, bugs that don't like air to air. Uh, Bugs that don't like sun exposes them to sun, causes them harm. So it it used to take us 11 passes, 11 dirt-moving passes, uh, because of the nature of, you know, we were growing the crops on raised beds. So, you know, we would have to basically remove the the, the wheat stubble that was on the field first. Uh, then so you'd go with a tractor with a yeah, with we, disc we would, it. We would disc it. We would chisel it. We would make beds. Then we would cultivate those beds multiple times and, you know, like mulch them and do all this kind of stuff to create this very nice looking, you know, environment for a corn plant to grow. But we were also producing somewhat of a sterile environment because of all of that movement. And so what we came up with was this process called strip tilling. And so we went from 11 passes to really a half because uh, we were only m- actually disturbing half of the land in a, in a strip, you know, um, and leaving the stubble from the previous crop on the ground, 
which is good food for the bugs, right? So we were leaving the, instead of losing it as a carbon source, because when, when plant matter breaks down underground, it tends to flash off. Uh, the carbon is released into the air, but when you when plant matter is decomposes on top of the ground, it gets sequestered and is stored. And and as a result, like our soils have much higher carbon content as a percentage than than they used to because of this new pro- process. And the carbon is what feeds the bug. So there's been some great opportunities there. I just want to say that I never learned any of this in biology class. Did you take biology class? At some point, I must have taken it. And all of this sounds brand new to me, that bugs are bringing nutrients to the plants. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know that this was the main thing of agriculture. I think I took it when I was probably like in eighth grade. And then I skipped like the next level of biology. And I remember taking some classes where I was like in way over my head. So I I feel that way, right? (laughs) That's a lot of important information. Just like we heard with the Marine Carbon Project, we have learned that by having a lighter footprint on the farm, by exposing just a very thin strip of the soil to the atmosphere just once a year, you're keeping all the healthy biological processes intact. In turn, this absorbs more carbon and water into the earth, and it also reduces the amount of money spent on diesel for the tractor. Dino, how did you measure all these impacts? So we did a we did a bunch of research projects here, and we had um, uh, the National Soils Tilth Lab out of Ames, Iowa, contracted with the Space Dynamics Lab in in Utah, and and these guys took a bunch of sensors like lidar and all this stuff that they actually generally put in um, in like probes that they launch into, you know, Space. like the atmosphere yeah. of Saturn and, you know, try to see what's in it. They they brought that stuff to my farm and spent a year. Like they had it installed for one year. It was an 83% reduction in uh, dust and an 83% reduction in diesel emissions. Um, their research also shows that it absorbs a lot more water. It holds more water. Exactly. Holds more water. Have you found that as well? That's absolutely true, yes. Yep. And were you able to, like, survive the drought in part because of – how did you survive the drought? (laughs) Barely. Mm -hmm. I understand from, you know, the science of it that, you know, carbon in the soil, it's like a a charcoal filter, right? Like, Like carbon has these, like, millions of micropores, and those micropores are what trap things uh, in order for a filter to work, right? Like why you have a carbon filter in your Brita, as an example. So the soil works a bit like that, right? So, but, but, it's, but it's highly variable because soil, is, you know, soil texture is very broad, right? I mean, everything from very gravelly sa- ground and sand and, and silt and clay, you know, which is very fine particles. So, you know, we, we have soil here that is kind of um, fairly ideal, right? Like we're in a, we're very fortunate in that we farm in one of the best places on earth. Others view you as kind of an environmental champion for bringing these conservation practices on the farm. Do you think that's an apt title or how do you see your work? Why I did it was because it was the most economical way to farm. And sustainability 
starts with economics because we did it for for the benefit of our neighbors. You know, I mean, I don't want my kids and my employees' kids who live near the farm and their kids go to the school behind my farm and, you know, this kind of stuff. I don't want them exposed to these, you know, the, the bad air in this valley. I mean, I live here. I don't want to – I want to improve that, right? But But it had to work or, you know, it had to work economically or there was no point. Now that it has worked economically, how have you seen the adoption by 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 others? Because even even when things save money, sometimes it's difficult to get people to change their habit. Habit changing is a really uh, uh, is a big challenge. But you know, the University of California um, has done a really good job of of uh, promoting this practice. When I was started doing this, there was like another guy doing something similar. Um, and you know maybe what we had between the two of us six or seven hundred acres uh, in conservation tillage, and now there's over a million. That's uh, I think a million and a half, something wow. like that. In and I would say maybe since like 2004, you know, and and it's been nearly doubling year year over year. So you know th- this is uh, it's I think it's becoming pretty widely adopted. That's incredible. Dino, I know from our history that you're not a fan of environmental regulations. What informed that perspective? I mean, it's it's getting to the point where a small family farm cannot function in California because we don't have the resources to manage the complexity. There are so many regulations by so many separate agencies that are operating in silos and have no, you know, cohesive plan or holistic plan to manage things, that they're standing each, in each other's ways to innovate the technology and the ideas that are necessary to solve the environmental problems. What do you see as the, the road ahead, Dino? I mean, for one thing, I'm a libertarian, okay? So I have a, I have a personally a very uh, specific view about regulations. It's impossible to be a pure libertarian, right? I think a modern libertarian view is that there's the possibility of something that we could call like smart regulation, right? Where there's flexibility, where there's communication involved between agencies. Unbridled capitalism creates unbridled control, right? And and so neither of those work. And right now, we've gone the other way. We have gone too far. And so us people like in the middle who see where the real solutions come, which is actually doing something, right? You could talk about it all you want. I mean, one of the greatest things for me about being, you know, somebody that cares about the environment is I actually get to do something about it, right? I mean, I give you a lot of credit because you're doing it. Like, I don't really care what your political views are. You showing me by your actions that you care about the environment. Well, you know, I do care. And I and and to be honest with you, every farmer that I know also cares, right? Every single one. Because, you know, we we have the most at stake, right? If we if we ruin our resource, then we're out of business, right? A group of farmers and I in 2009 started a nonprofit organization called the Plant Foundation, and we developed a program called Farm Academy. And our program teaches teaches um, 
standards compliant science to K through eighth grade students using agriculture as the example so that we could teach kids how to think about, you know, anything, right? To be, to have that skepticism, to be able to break through their yeah. biases, to, to think through the scientific method, but also apply science to something that's really important, where their food comes from and the environment. Going to visit Dino and Grandma Lilia opened my eyes to how farmers are integral to protecting the earth. If we're going to apply the planet-saving practices that John Keller and Dino shared with us today, we're going to need to build much stronger partnerships between urban and rural communities, between armchair environmentalists and farmers. Before we wrap up, let's check in with Kala from the Marine Carbon Project to find out about her latest efforts to secure funding for expanding carbon farming. We were able to help build the Healthy Soils Initiative in California, which takes money from the cap-and-trade system and gives it to farmers to do these practices. Um, we also did a series of uh, policies that helps move organics out of landfills and off of dairies. But it's challenging uh, for a number of reasons. One, because it's so much easier to finance technology. And so really, people love technology. People love technology. If I went to someone and said, I have this great new technology which can sequester carbon and put it in the ground and keep it there and I can sell it to you, and there's, these are the modules, and we're going to produce this thing, you'd get so much investment, right? The challenge that we face is that composting is a natural process that just needs humans to do it. There's, no, there's some technology involved. There's no patent. There's, it's not new tech. And so our, finan our financial institutions are not really able to finance the things that we need, which are the farmers, the labor of the farmers, and the composting itself. So we're not challenged by technical capacity that the earth has. We're challenged by the systems that humans have to reward each other to do these things. Um, so that's really the biggest challenge that we face. And some of that we can overcome with policy, but a lot of it um, will require shifts in our fundamental economic structure as well. And I think that's part of the next challenge that we have to address. Thanks to John Keller, Lillian Dino for giving David and I a primer in the biology of soil science and for getting their hands dirty each and every day of the year. Through their pioneering work, they have shown us how to store carbon in the soil while we take the steps necessary to decarbonize our economy. As Kala said, this isn't a new technology, it's a natural system that we can engage. The benefits extend to producing higher quality agriculture and saving farmers money. Now, that's something that we can all support. As Zeno mentioned, scientists estimate that one gram of soil contains more than 10,000 different species of microorganisms. That's more biodiversity in one gram of soil than all the different types of mammals in the entire world. What I took away from today's episode is that we need to help support our farmers by establishing food scrap composting programs in every community in our country and around the world. We can then work to help farmers get the technical support and funding they need to implement carbon farming programs. Just like fair trade and organic labels on food, we need to help consumers prioritize purchasing food grown by families like Dino's who practice carbon farming. I've posted links on the website to this episode to help you start that conversation in your community. In next week's episode, we'll blend two of April's big celebrations, 420 and Earth Day. So get ready to discuss the greening of weed. Please like Podship Earth pages on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, editor Rob Spate, 
Producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jerry Blumenfeld, have an absolutely fabulous week. <laughs>